so nice to see all of you as more and more people are coming back to in-person services. And uh, frankly, I'm a little surprised to see this many of you on this perfect Jersey Shore day. What's the deal with all you guys? Wow. Uh, so, so really glad that you're here. So Tim Ferriss, the uh, wildly popular podcaster and author, wrote something that I've thought about a lot over the last couple years. He said that the opposite of happiness is boredom. The opposite of happiness is boredom. The fact is, I've come to believe there's a lot of truth in that statement. Not capital T, scriptural truth, but small t, there's a lot of truth in that statement. The opposite of happiness is boredom. Um, have you ever wondered why time seems to pass so much more quickly as we age, as opposed to when we were young? Now, some of you younger folks may not get this. Uh, you know, some of us, though, who, like me, are in, let's say, our early 40s, for instance, perhaps. Uh, we, we would understand that as you get older, um, time seems to pass more quickly. 58, by the way. There, there's uh, an assumption that, in general, that the way adults experience time as we get older explains why time seems to speed up. Uh, all the way back in the 19th century, the, the famous psychologist William James got this concept. He, he wrote, the foreshortening of the years as we grow older is due to the monotony of memory's content. In youth, we may have an absolutely new experience every hour of the day. Older people, by contrast, develop routines, which James classifies as monotony. Now, modern science has shown that James was actually right, that, uh, that, that, they're, they're, that, that the monotony experienced in the memory of someone as they grow older uh, tends to cause time to pass more quickly. The Stanford neuroscientist David Eagleman, for instance, conducted an experiment where he flashed an image of a brown shoe repeatedly on a computer and then interrupted it just every once in a while, rarely with an image of a flower. The, the subjects who, who were participating in this experiment reported that the flower was on the screen much longer than the brown shoes, even though they were actually up the same amount of time each one of them was shown. And, and Professor Eagleman explained, time is this rubbery thing. It stretches out when you really turn your brain resources on. But when you say, oh, I got this, everything is as expected, it shrinks up. Other scientists refer to this phenomena as the, as the fact that they, they call it the oddball effect, that we tend to overemphasize the duration of rare events. We overemphasize the duration of rare events. Tim Gerson, in his beautiful book, The Telling, in response to some of this, said that generating this overestimation is the key to prolonging the experience of living. All one has to do, he said, is to add rare events to one's life. Now, um, this is part of what's on my mind. Part of what's on my mind, a lot on my mind, but part of what's on my mind as we begin this new series today called Follow Me, The Adventure of a Lifetime. I cannot think of anything in this world more exciting than the fact that the God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ showed up on this planet and shows up in our lives to invite us to follow him. I have experienced, and I do experience, following Jesus as the adventure of a lifetime. Jesus is the ultimate disruptor. He shows up in our lives, and he saves us from life like everybody else has it. He invites us into relationship with him. He invites us to play our part in the redemption of the planet. He invites us to live in partnership with him in a way that truly matters forever. This truth informs my constant emphasis on the promise Jesus gave us in John chapter 10 verse 10 that you hear me recite every week in every benediction. 
where Jesus promised us life in all of its fullness, or as the message has it, more and better life than we ever dreamed of. Now, however one would define monotony, that's not it. Jesus imbues our lives with meaning that if we will participate and pay attention, surrounds the very atmosphere of our lives with rarefied air. I mean, imagine the experiences of the first disciples of Jesus. Imagine what they experienced. Jesus would simply walk up to them and he'd say, follow me. Follow me. And when they did, they embarked on the adventure of a lifetime. It wasn't that their lives before Jesus were inherently bad. They were just normal. So you have somebody like Simon, who was a successful small businessman, presumably with a nice income. He lived in a nice home. I've seen the archaeological dig of his home in, in Capernaum. He, he lived in, in, a, in, a, in a pretty nice home for that time. Nothing wrong with any of that. But when Jesus disrupted his life, he goes from Simon, you know, the, 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 the nice guy in a nice town living a normal life and all that stuff. He goes from that to Simon Peter, the guy who becomes the spokesman for the early Christian church. Or um, you think about Matthew. Matthew was a, a, a tax collector at that time, uh, uh, probably fairly wealthy and, and probably a little corrupt. That wasn't good at all. But he goes from Matthew, the tax collector, to pinning the gospel that bears his name and that has influenced the world. Jesus disrupted the monotony of his life and called him to something pretty rare. Or you think about John who, who went uh, from uh, the shadow of his older brother and the ambitious dominance of his mother to becoming one of uh, the closest friends of Jesus and one of the greatest figures in human history. And it wasn't just the 12 who had those kinds of follow me and everything becomes pretty rarefied experience. It was, it was the 12, they were the first ones, they played a singular role, but then as you study the Gospels, it's the 70, and then you know at some point it's 120 people waiting in an upper room for the Holy Spirit to come, which Jesus had promised. From early in his ministry, there were always a group of disciples who were in a special relationship with him and experienced more, infinitely more life, an uh, infinitely better life than they could possibly have ever dreamed of. And this group of disciples included a very prominent cadre of women as well. Jesus invited and included and celebrated women in a way that had not been done by any other prominent leader up to that time in history. Luke in his gospel said that Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I think there's not enough awareness of this. The gospel has a thread of this unique role women played in the ministry of Jesus thing going on. So you have Mary Magdalene going from demonic exorcism to becoming the first witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Or Joanna, the wife of the manager of King Herod's household, or, or Susanna, many others it says. Some of these women, like Joanna, were women of means and financially funded the ministry of Jesus. Or you have someone like Mary, the sister of Lazarus. The relationship that Jesus had with Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was, was uh, pretty incredible in that some of the way she's described at sitting at his feet and, 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 and so on is the, is the same kind of verbiage that would have been used to describe a male disciple in training to become a rabbi by a rabbi. This was the kind of thing just... You know, it didn't happen at that time, but it happened to Mary. She went from, I'm sure, a nice lady, you know, living a nice life and having a nice family to Jesus showing up, and everything changes, and life becomes an amazing adventure. And these women, by the way, when the, you know, they were with him to the very end, or what they thought was the very end. It wasn't the end, it was the beginning, but they thought it was the end, the cross 
Matthew 27, 55, many women were there at the cross watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Look, when the men ran, they stayed. But I'm going to promise you this. From the minute those women began to follow Jesus, their lives were not boring. It was the adventure of a lifetime. Do you get the point? Now, the theme passage from Scripture for the series that we're launching today that for us is going to be a relatively short series, a four-week series, the theme passage from Scripture that's going to inform how we teach over the next several weeks. I'm going to teach a couple weeks, a couple other folks teach a couple weeks. I think it's going to be a wonderful series. The theme passage comes from Mark chapter 3, which tells us that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Then Jesus does some ministry and we're told then, Mark three thirteen, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So this passage speaks specifically to the appointment of the 12 disciples, 11 of whom would become apostles, but these 12 were the first of many disciples, and I think we can learn from this passage what it's like when Jesus looks at the crowd and says, I want you, and he calls you to follow him in a way that changes everything in your life. So we'll organize the series around the four actions in this passage, and those four actions is he looks at the crowd, and first of all, he called to him those he wanted. And that's what I want to emphasize today. Secondly, they came to him. Thirdly, they were with him. So next week we're going to talk about what it looks like to come to him. Father's Day, a couple weeks from now, in addition to having field day, and I hope there is an ax involved actually. Can you make that happen, Joel? It's, five, it's men. We want to, anyway, they came to him. That's a couple weeks from now. And then third, they, I'm sorry, Third, they were with him. That's the Father's Day topic. And then he sent them out. That'll be the fourth message in this series. So today, for the rest of my time, and by the way, if you're new to us, you're thinking, how long is this guy going to talk? Well, I've got 27 minutes and 55 seconds left, okay? The goal is a 40-minute talk. I have actually done a 40-minute talk at some point, but that's the goal. Just so you know, and then we're going we're gonna to close our time together by coming around the Lord's table. Today is a Sunday when we're serving communion, and uh, so you have that to look forward to. Uh, you can survive the talk by thinking about how wonderful that's going to be. I want to focus for a few minutes on this simple point. He wants you. I want you to think about Jesus looking at the crowd, and he calls to them those he wanted. What an amazing thing it must have been for Jesus to say, hey, Matthew or Simon or John or James or, hey, I want you. Come here. And they move from the crowd and they become a part of this intimate group of disciples who today I'll call the core. Um, so I, 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 want, I want this assumption to, to kind of permeate our thinking today and that is that the very fact that you're in this room or watching online causes me to believe that you're one of the people that Jesus looked at and said, I want you. So we'll dig further than that in a moment, but let me just pause for a minute and let me define what we mean when we say a disciple of Jesus or what we mean when we talk about discipleship. Here's my definition of discipleship, and this might change a little bit over the next few weeks as I dig in and study this and learn more about the subject, but this is, this is how I want to define discipleship today. A, discipleship, a disciple of Jesus is a person who says yes to his call, is in growing relationship with him, and who by God's grace does his will. A disciple of Jesus is a person who says yes to his call, is in growing relationship with him, and who by God's grace, which is the only way we can do it, does his will, okay? So let me organize the rest of today's teaching like this. He wants you so. He wants you so. And by the way, if you'd like, uh, uh, those of you who are just starting to come back in person, we've started uh, doing uh, uh, physical life notes again. If you'd like to follow along and take notes, 
uh, they're in a seat pocket close to you or under your seat if you're here on the front row. Um, and uh, today might especially stimulate your thinking. Uh, and by the way, you also can use the TLCC app to take notes. And, and I know a lot of you online have learned how to do whatever you guys are doing in the online platform to take notes as well. But, but he wants you so you, or if you're taking notes, I'd like for you to say I, must say yes to his invitation to move from the crowd to the core. You, I, must say yes to his invitation to move from the crowd to the core. Now I want to emphasize again this idea that he wants you. I believe Jesus offers each of us the opportunity to move from the crowd of onlookers to the more intimate reality of discipleship. Now why do I believe that? Why do I believe it includes all of us here, all of us watching more than likely? Well, for several reasons. One would be what's called the doctrine of prevenient grace a doctrine developed by the church over many years of studying Scripture and trying to understand the relationship between what God does and what we do as it concerns coming to Him. And the doctrine of prevenient grace says that before a person can seek God, God must first have sought for that person. Before a person can seek God, God must first have sought for that person. So I then have this assumption again that if you're here, with any interest at all in Jesus, in his church, and what's happening in a place like this, any sense of seeking after God, you're here because God sought you first. Okay? You're watching on this Sunday morning when you could be outside in this gorgeous weather and Sharon and I are sitting over there. Well, I shouldn't have said that. Just a second ago saying, where are we going to go eat after church? All right? I'm a human being, right? I did that while moving. To, I think that was during commons. But anyway, uh, I think I just got sidetracked. On this beautiful day that you folks are watching online and could be doing all kind of other things, there's this assumption that's a part of the doctrine of the church writ large, which says that you're interested in Jesus because he was interested in you first, and if you have any openness at all to things concerning Jesus, it's because he looked in the crowd and he saw you and he said, I want you. Something in you started to open up to him. So that's one reason that I think that when I'm talking about you being called out of the crowd, that's one reason. Then there are others like, like you know, the 12 disciples were, again, unique, yet they were the first of many Jesus wanted. For instance, when Jesus prayed famously in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't just pray for the 12. He prayed for all the disciples who would come to faith as a result of the message of those first 12. John 17, 20, Jesus praying said, my prayer is not for them alone. It's not just for you 12 guys. I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Or, or I like, for instance, uh, how the apostle Peter, when in, after the Holy Spirit came in the upper room, how that he wanted to make it clear that, that what happened to that group of 120 Christ followers wasn't exclusive to them. In fact, Peter, at the very end of his message, it, it, almost like his benediction, he said in Acts 2.39, the promise, what God is doing, what God just did here, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So here's the deal. I want to, I if I can, kind of get this in your mind. I want you to know that when I'm saying that he looked at the crowd and he called to them those he wanted, you are one of the people that he looked at and said, I want you. So when Jesus calls us then, we have a decision to make as to how we respond. And part of that decision is whether or not we're willing to move from the crowd to the core. And so you see this passage in Mark 3, which is our theme passage for the series. I want you to see it a little bit in, in its larger context. Mark chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd. You're going to notice a lot of distinctions when you, if you look at this when you read the Gospels between the crowd and the core, the onlookers and the core, the consumers and the team. 
if you please. All right? So he withdrew with his disciples of the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Jesus did some ministry, and then he went up on a mountainside. And here's that text. He called to them those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And then we're told who the 12 are. And then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. The crowd, the team, When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. His family thought Jesus was nuts. I preached about that on Good Friday. If you're interested in a little more of that, you can go to the archives online or on the app and see it. Standing outside, his family, now standing outside, sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It's fascinating. He redefines who his family is. Now he includes his family in this redefinition, obviously. But his family, his his team, his core, his disciples now are whoever does his will. It's really that simple. He looks at the group around him and he says, let me tell you who can hang out with me at this level, if you please. It's whoever is willing to do my will. We leave the crowd and become a part of the core when we say yes to his invitation to do his will. Now let's take a quick look at some examples Uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, about what it looks like to move from the crowd to the core, the difference between the crowd and the core. These are just three or four that came to mind this week. It's not comprehensive. It's just some things that, that that I thought about. Here's one. The crowd likes what he does. The core does what he says. This is quite a distinction. The crowd, they like what he does. I like what I experience, you know, when I show up in church and people are worshiping Jesus, it feels great. I love the energy. I learned some things. I apply it that week. It's, it's great. It's wonderful. Jesus was really kind to the crowd almost all the time. He loved the crowd. But the difference between the crowd and the core is the crowd, they liked what he did, but the core, they tried to do what he said. And the possibilities of this are really beautiful for our lives. So for instance, the feeding of the 5,000. You, you, everybody knows that story, I think. The crowds, Luke said, followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. He liked the people in the crowd, loved them, served them. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go find food and lodging. And he replied now to his disciples, to the guys on the core, he said, you give them something to eat. You know the story, we can only find whatever, and they gave it to Jesus. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to, the, to distribute to the people. They all ate, were satisfied, and disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So here's the deal. Here's one example of what it, the difference between the crowd and the core. The crowd consumed. The core, the disciples, participated. They helped him do his work. Now, where would I like to have been on that day? It would have been amazing to be in the crowd and to have a nice meal miraculously provided by Jesus Christ. We would have gone home, you know, while watching ESPN that night. We'd have been sitting there saying, wow, that was better even than... I was going to say the Yankees, but I'm, I'm about to give up on the Yankees right now. But this, wait, 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 that, what happened today with Jesus? Wow, that was amazing. Thousands of people sitting around having that conversation that night. I would have rather been in the debrief, though, with the 12. Right? Huh, that was a, t- that was a challenging day. Wow, did you see Jesus? We gave him the fish and loaves. You see what he did? We, he gave us the fi- We got to feed the people. 
In fact, they're sitting there with 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Do you, do you see the difference now between the crowd and the core, the kind of possibility? I'd rather be in the debrief backstage, y'all sweaty and not sweaty necessarily, but I like to be sitting back there saying, wow, do you see what God did today? Do you see how people's lives were changed? Did you notice that family that, boy, they were having an issue and you just noticed the Holy Spirit really touched them that day? I, I, I'd rather be in the core than the crowd. Because when you're in the core, you get to participate in what you get. You become a part of the team. You're showing up to, to work with him. Here, here's another one. The crowd stays as long as it's easy. The core becomes even more committed when following Jesus becomes difficult. So here's, here's a, you know, John chapter 6, Jesus offers a hard teaching I won't get into because it's so uh, uh, difficult. It'd take me an hour. I did a 50-minute sermon on it recently. You don't want me to do two sermons a day. But anyway, he offers his hard teaching, and his, many of his disciples, now there are disciples and there are disciples. There are followers and there are followers. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus said, you don't want to leave too. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And the crowd says, you know, so this is hard, but Jesus, if this is what you're teaching, we're in. We're going to actually lean into this. You know, by the way, guys, in today's world, you know this very well, the kind of things you guys are facing every day. You know, I had one of our elders today, a, a, a criminal defense attorney, Stan Hickman, stopped me out in the lobby today, and, and part of what he said, he said, Pastor, the world's going crazy. Everything's upside down. And he started talking specifically about some of the things that are constantly being pushed at his, at his workplace and, 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 and how it's at odds with the teachings of Scripture. And, you know, I'm not going to get into that kind of stuff today except to say that sometimes the teachings of Jesus are hard. And the, and the culture is opposing what Jesus is saying. Well, the, the true disciple says, if Jesus said it, I believe it, I'm in. Right? Where, where the person who just kind of wants to be a part of the crowd says, you know, I, I just prefer to take the, the easy part because I don't want to be in a position that seems to be opposed to the prevailing culture. I might get canceled or something. And I, I think Jesus probably would have gotten canceled, but just for the record. Um, I probably shouldn't. Here's the next one. The crowd is not present. When Jesus needs partnership in his suffering, I put quotation marks around needs because you start talking about God having a need and you, you have to be careful. But as a man, Jesus had needs. The crowd is not present when Jesus needs partnership in his suffering, but the core is expected to be in solidarity with Jesus regardless how dark the night. Garden of Gethsemane, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, Matthew's gospel said. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. See, the core gets involved in the suffering of Jesus as well as all the good stuff. And there's lots of good stuff. But I think when Jesus looks at the crowds still today, as is true when he, was, when, he, when he was walking around on the planet, he looks at the crowd and he's moved with compassion. And sometimes a tear goes down his face because he sees people who are broken and messed up and he loves them and he cares for them. We'll, we'll see what, what we feel when we're in the cores. We, our hearts are broken by the things that break his heart. We care about the things he cares about. When he's agonizing over someone's pain, we feel it too. We're involved with what Jesus is doing. Finally, I'll just say that the crowd then misses the adventure. But the core experienced the adventure of a lifetime. I mean, who did Jesus, he was raised from the, he's raised bodily from the dead. Who does he show up to talk to? Does he show up mass appearance to a gigantic crowd? No, the, 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 the appearances that, that we see in the Gospels, they're the, that, they're the people who are following him. It ends up being about 500 people over time, but he shows up first. He shows up to his disciples, his intimates, the guys who were with him or who were trying, who had the heart to be with him, even though they actually made some mistakes along the way. He showed up to them. And see, this is when, when, when Jesus looks in the crowd and says, as I believe he's saying to everyone in this room, I want you. And we say yes, and we get involved and try to do his will. All of a sudden, we have more and better life than we ever dreamed of. All right, here's the second thing. 
He wants you so. You, or if you're taking notes, you might want to write I, must be all in. You must be all in. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the prolific pastor, theologian, uh, and uh, person of such acclaim that we named our miniature schnauzer after him, the prolific pastor theologian who gave his life to resist Adolf Hitler, wrote a classic book called The Cost of Discipleship. You see any list of books of the great Christian books that have been written in the last 100 years, it would be top 50 probably. The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when we are called to Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to his person. It's an amazing statement. When we are called to Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to his person. Now we have the opportunity through the gift of the Holy Spirit to have an attachment to the person of Jesus. He, he comes into our lives through his spirit now and it's an amazing thing. We can actually be attached to him. But it's important to understand that the privilege of attachment comes with a qualification. And that is that our attachment to Jesus must be an exclusive attachment. To be attached to Jesus we must leave all other attachments behind, at least any attachment that might come before our attachment to him. So one of the things that happens when Jesus is going up and calling people to follow him, and I'm sorry, guys, this, I realized as I was preaching this at the 9 o'clock service, this is coming out more intense than I imagined it when I wrote it, and typically on a pretty summer day like this, I try to not be too intense because people aren't in a mood for that. But as I, the fact is that this, you know, as so often what I studied this week to share with you convicted me, moved me, you know, challenged me. And so, you know, I feel some passion around this and I, pardon me if you feel the, 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 the heat coming, coming off, but it's pretty serious stuff. When Jesus would go and call people, he'd say, follow me. Part of that, in most, if not every case, was that they left something. They left something less to get something better. And then there were some people who missed it because they weren't willing. And I think for all of us, the, the attachment that keeps us from exclusive attachment to Jesus is different for all of us. You know, so the, the rich young ruler is one of those, those examples. J Jesus, tell me what to do, he says. And G Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And we know the rest of the text said the guy went away brokenhearted. For that guy, it was his money that kept him from an exclusive attachment to Jesus. That may not be anyone's problem in this room, and it might be someone's problem in this room, but the point is, if money and things are keeping you from an exclusive attachment to Jesus, following you might mean what it looks like to get that in proper order. Who is Lord in your life? Mammon, money, or Jesus? Uh, uh, then, then, then he says to one guy, follow me, and this guy says, it seems like a pretty legitimate thing. He says, let me go bury my father first. And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Not very politically correct, is he? He's trying to make a point. The point is made in, 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 to an even greater extent when in Luke's gospel, Jesus is saying, if anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? What, now, now, it's important that you understand what's going on here. Jesus is using a, a rhetorical... Um, uh, He's using rhetoric that represents Near Eastern hyperbole, which is where not just Jesus, but other speakers at that time would, would make a radical statement so just outlandish that the point was to make a point, not necessarily literally what he said. So, so obviously, so we know 
that Jesus taught us, I mean, Scripture teaches we're supposed to love our family with a divine, selfless love, right? We know that. We know that Jesus said we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus even said we're supposed to love our enemies. So what is he saying here when he says you have to hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister? He's saying in this hyperbolic rhetoric, he's saying your love for me should be so great that your love for everyone else looks like hate. You understand? Now, does he want us to love each other? Yes, the whole, you know, sum up the great commandment, Jesus. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus was all about love. But he's saying, this exclusive attachment to me is so real that you are so committed to me that all the other things you're committed to in your life don't even look like commitment. It's heavy stuff. Like someone said, 99% devotion to Jesus is not devotion at all. It's like the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians about Jesus. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all, who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. What would it look like for each of us to really make Jesus first in everything in our lives. See, part of the adventure of discipleship, if you want the adventure part, you have to also accept the risk part. And part of the risk part is you have to risk the monotony of life like everyone else has it and say yes to the radical call of Jesus. To receive more and better life, you have to be willing to give up life as you know it. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 39, if you cling to your life, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, Jesus said, you will find it. Now let me say something very, very carefully. I want to say this very carefully. And we'll probably have to erase part of what I said in the first service because I strayed away from my notes and got into dangerous territory. But... Let me say this, and if you, you know, many of you, I've been your pastor for many, many, many years, some of you 30 years, and you know how much I love you, care about you. Now, with that, during the pandemic, I've heard some other Christian leaders and pastors, people that I love and respect and usually agree with, say things like this that really sound good on their face, but they say things like this, your safety is our first priority. Your safety, a pastor to his congregation, for instance, is our first priority. And here's the thought I had. Now, here's the thought I had. That's not what I hear Jesus saying to his disciples. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I care deeply about you. And by the way, I know that you care deeply about me back. And we love each other and we want to protect each other and keep each other safe, right? And we've worked really hard to do that here over the pandemic. I'm not minimizing the pandemic. I'm just saying your safety is my first priority is not the way that I think. Here's how I think. You following Jesus and doing his will, whatever that means, is my first priority. That's my job. My message to my children as I was raising them, and still today, has never been, I want you to live a nice, comfortable, safe, cushy life. No, my message to my children has always been, I want you to chase your God-given dreams, whatever it costs you. And so I have things like... Well, sometimes it's come back to bite me as my kids go chase their God-given dreams like Christian and Amanda are embarking on a crazy and wonderful adventure right now. Some of that is my fault. Uh, the rest of it's God's fault. And I... <laughs> if safety is our first priority, we're never going to send missionaries to dangerous places. 
If safety is our first priority, we're never going to serve the poor in less than safe circumstances. If safety is our first priority, we're never going to place Christian chaplains in the armed forces. If safety is our first priority, we're never going to send our kids on mission trips to risky places. And I could go on and on and on and on. I'm concerned about a church that's not talking more about how essential we are to our society and to what Jesus came and died for and came to do and seeds to the culture that our job is just to, you know, be a bunch of nice little people and keep the rules. See, that wasn't in the notes, and that's where I get in trouble. You guys have to realize that part of what informs my thinking is that I watched, when I was a freshman in high school, I watched my parents sell everything they had to enter vocational ministry. And the reason they did that is because several years earlier, my dad was driving his car out somewhere. My dad was a successful businessman. We had a lovely home and all the nice things that, you know, the American dream stuff. And, 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 uh, uh, but my dad's driving his car down the road and he felt God call him to vocational ministry. And he walked in and announced it to me and my sister and my mom and everything in our lives from that point forward became my dad and mom and our family doing what they believed God had called them to do. And so he started to study and prepare for ministry and work towards ordination. Of course, he did all of this with the blessing of our pastor and the other words he was under authority. But the time came that for us to be able to fulfill that call, and I don't have time to get into details now, they sold literally everything they had. Now, there, was, there were a few keepsakes that they kept in my grandmother's garage. But other than that, they sold everything they had. And our family embarked on an adventure of full-time ministry that caused us to travel around the country. And my dad spoke in churches all over the country. And my sister and I wrote songs and sang and played music. Uh, but I'm not going to do that for anybody here. <laughs> but I think about how crazy that was. And how did that affect me as a freshman in high school? It was the adventure of a lifetime. We, and and here's, here's the reality. We wouldn't be here in this room today if my parents wouldn't have taught me that when you feel God calling you to do something, you are willing to risk it all. And by the way, by the way, I'm really over time and I'm not finished. Uh, so I'll think about how to wrap this up quickly. I want to commend our Club Six parents last week. I didn't even, I wasn't even tracking this whole story, Michelle. Uh, but our club, so we have a catechism for sixth grade kids. And it's a big deal here in our church. And our families here have made it a big deal. Our staff makes it a big deal. And during the pandemic, we had 15 families bring in their kids during the pandemic every Thursday night, I think, Michelle, is that true? Every Wednesday night, here in person, masked, socially distanced. We care deeply about their safety. Amazingly, here they are last week, all alive. And, and uh, you know, we made it. <laughs> That's being a little smart aleck there. But. but please understand, we followed all the regulations. I take the pandemics very seriously. I know so many people have suffered in such deep ways. I, I, I've talked a lot about that. T today, what, 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 I emphasize, what I want to emphasize is something, a, a, another value, which is what, are these, what do these parents say to these kids at this pivotal time in their life when the whole world shut down, but they're saying, you know what, we're going to drive to the church and, and we're going to do everything we can to keep things safe and sanitized and all that, but we value so much you learning about Jesus and about Christian doctrine and how to chase God's dreams for your life. We're actually going to risk a little bit in a way that some people would, might even disagree and condemn us for. I, I, I'm, I'm not even talking about right or wrong right now. I'm just saying, what did those parents teach their kids about what's important in life? Remember, guys, 10 of the original, this is pretty heavy for a June summer morning, but 10 of the original 12 disciples were martyred. When Jesus said, follow me to those guys, it wasn't, you know, and I'm going to give you a really nice, comfortable life. Now, I say that, 
You know, years ago, I mean, Sharon and I have come to places in our, lift, in our lives like we did 30 years ago to move from the comfortable Midwest Bible Belt reality ministry thing we had where it's so much easier in every way. There was a time we risked everything, came here to, to assume the pastor of a beautiful group of 54 people, and, and, uh, I, and we know what it is. My parents taught me to do that. Now, the truth is, we, we, live, you know, we live in a beautiful home, beautiful home, and, and we're blessed in so many ways. That really wasn't on our mind 30 years ago, though. It was just God's calling us to New Jersey to build a great church, and we're going to go, and whatever, whatever that means, we're in. And I told Sharon, you know, she tells this story pretty frequently, like two weeks after we were here, we were, this just isn't in my notes either, we're pastoring, passing a, 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 a cemetery, and I pointed to the cemetery, what was it, Rosedale, I think? I pointed to Rosedale Cemetery, and I said, Sharon, you can go ahead and buy my burial plot right there. Because God's called us here, and we're going to stay here, and this is where I'm going to die, and this is where you're going to bury me. And she tells that story. I don't even remember it as well as she does, but there's this sense. Why are you here? Why are we here right now? We're here because God, years ago, we believed, called us to come. And, and, and here we are. Each of us, in our own way, have these moments in our lives where God is calling us to move from a crowd of onlookers who say, I think all that's nice and wonderful. Some of you, God's tugging at your heart at this time in your life to take a step where you say, I'm all in. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., the night before he was assassinated, at 39 years old, stood in a church and made a speech that many of you will remember very well. In part of it, he said, like anybody, I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. So I'm happy tonight, he said. I'm not worried about anything. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And see, some people would say he died at age 39. What a waste. We wouldn't be sitting, I mean, in a much larger way than anything else I could say about anything we or this church have ever done in a huge way. We wouldn't be sitting here today if a man wouldn't have been willing to risk it all because he believed he was, he was doing the will of God. So, you know, would Martin Luther King Jr. have preferred to live to the ripe old age of 90 and live a nice, boring, monotonous life? or to let his life be consumed by a cause based on a sense of calling to do the will of God. Guys, this is the kind of mentality that we've gotta get, at least in part, as to what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'm on page nine of 11, but I better finish. Would you stand with me, please? We need to receive communion. What's my third point? My third point is, he wants you so. Know that you means you. Or if you're taking notes, you can say, know that me means me. And here's, here's how I want to close this little talk. Being a disciple, so here's what I've heard so many times from people over the years. I've heard, I've heard people essentially say, Pastor, you know, I'd like to follow Jesus, but I can't believe he would really want me. I'm surprised by the people I hear that from. Pastor, you don't really know me. You don't really know the things I struggle with, the mistakes I've made, things I'm dealing with right now. You don't know some of the thoughts I have, some of the things I'm tempted by, some of the ways I've fallen. I hear this from people where they're disqualifying themselves and they think that when I say he wants you, you're thinking, well, not really me, somebody here. But, but I, I felt really led this week to bring to mind a passage of scripture where Jesus is sitting at the Last Supper. And this is a good thing to talk about as we come around the Lord's table for a few minutes. Where Jesus is sitting at the Last Supper and he looked at his disciples and he said, you are clean. Though not everyone, and he's referring to Judas, you are clean, though not everyone. Even though he knew, in fact, he told them in Matthew's gospel, he said, you're all going to stumble here in the next little bit. 
which of course they did. Those guys, they left him at the cross, right? All of them except John, as far as we know. He said, you're all gonna stumble, but he still looked at him and he said, you are clean. You are clean, everybody except Judas. How could he look at them and say, you are clean, even though he knew they were about to stumble? Because Jesus has the ability to look at someone in the whole of their lives. He has the ability to look at somebody's heart. He has the ability to see your desire. He has the ability to see you stumble, but know on the other side of the stumble that you're gonna come back and, to him and you're gonna get involved in what he's doing in a profound way. Rarely have I met a Judas. See, Judas doesn't show up in a room like this. You understand? Judas isn't sitting at home watching online right now. I think Jesus looks at everybody here and he says, you are clean. And I think the other thing he says, and I want you to hear this, is I think he also looks at you and he says, I want you. And he doesn't want you to say, but Jesus, you don't know me. Because he does. He knows all the junk, all the stuff. And guys, we've all got some stuff. All of us. And somehow or another, he still looks at us and he loves us and he wants us and he calls us to come to him and to be with him. And it's an amazing thing. And he made it possible then for us to do that through the cross. He took our sins on himself. So when we mess up, we can be forgiven and still be in close relationship with him so he can continue to change us and make us like himself. Doesn't mean he says our sin is okay. He doesn't. He loves us too much for that. Sin messes it up. Messes us up. But he says, I'm gonna take your sin, I'm gonna forgive you of it, and then I'm gonna help you live in a way where you grow and you learn how to, you have the power to overcome that and to live a different kind of life. Hear this. He looks at you, he says, you are clean, even though he knows the real stuff, and he wants you so much to come out of the crowd and to really be a follower of Jesus.